welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news, politics and research. I'm Nayana. And I'm Josh, and today is roughly the third <laughs> anniversary of the podcast. Yes, uh, Skeptex is now about three years old. Yeah. Well, actually, that's technically not true. Uh, Josh and I have been recording in some format for three years. Yeah. We kept it going during the pandemic, but this wasn't always Skeptex. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but but the, the headline is three uh, three years, so we thought we'd cover some uh, some fairly obvious news stories this week, um, but also have a bit of a retrospective towards the end about some of the things that we've seen, trends that we've spotted over three years of, of doing this podcast. But yeah, this is this would be a big story on, on any big course. This is the ongoing uh, ramifications of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and, and what it means. I mean, I think there's loads and loads of different things we could talk about this this week in relation to this story, but what, what really catches your eye as being the, one of the most important angles we could take on, on this, this ongoing side? We've almost tried to avoid talking about it as a whole episode because yeah. it's been, uh, it's so unavoidable. I mean, I think some of the news that we talk about is news that is of interest to people in the tech sphere, but not necessarily something that affects people's lives. And with the Twitter changes under Musk, we've seen that people really, really have been impacted by this or will be impacted by this or are worried about the impact. I think for me, the most striking feature is just how how mercurial the whole thing is and how much it seems to change on a day-by-day basis. You can read the news in the morning and it'll be different by the evening. Um, You know, there's a real sense of, oh, what's going on this time over at Twitter? And I think that sense of uncertainty, I mean, if we feel that as users, I wonder how that's translating to like shareholders, to advertisers, to businesses. Um, How about you, Josh? What's the big takeaway from the whole Twitter Elon Musk saga? Yeah, there's so many to choose from. I think for me, the big, the big picture thing is that for a long time, Twitter had this um, status as being something akin to the town square of, mm. of the internet. Um, that was never quite true in practice for any number of reasons, but it is nonetheless still the case that it was a place where you know, leading um, policymakers, academics, um, industry people, media people, and of course, a lot of ordinary users as well could go on and, and converse. And to me, the biggest change, which has kind of undermined that from um, from Musk, has been uh, really um, disrupting this verification system. I think Twitter provided a sort of unofficial but relatively robust verification system, so that at least you knew that if uh, a uh, uh, say uh, an earthquake um, tracking system was uh, predicting an earthquake in the next two hours or whatever, you could actually uh, use that information if you were in an affected area um, and, and and do something about it. And that applies to just so many different uses to which Twitter has been put. Something about the form and the nature of it, the fact that you have these short messages and so on, really did help it to become this kind of listening post for the world, um, albeit imperfect. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what Musk has really taken aim at, certainly with the verification thing, but also with, of course, as we'll talk about, the use of very unscientific user polling to decide who comes hmm. back and the other decisions, as you say, that are being made on a whim. But I think that was that s- the single USP Twitter had was that verification system, which has been fatally undermined, I think, by Musk just in, just in the space of a month. The other thing that we've been hearing about a lot uh, at the OII, we had Roman Chowdhury in last week, uh, which was amazing. Obviously, former head of machine learning and ethics at Twitter. There's been mass resignations. Yeah. Um, and many people being fired as well. Um, And that's, you know, the Twitter workforce in many parts of the world is not actually as significant as some other companies. So for example, Twitter had something like 250 employees in India, really tiny, uh, considering the the scale of that operation, Um, now has about 70 at last count. That's 
that's tiny. I mean, and that's just India. There's so many kind of examples here. And the big question is, who's going to run Twitter now? Like, who is moderating Twitter? Um, and people have seemed to notice more glitches and more errors on the site. I, I don't know if you've noticed any of that, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I've been um, stepping back a bit from Twitter for a while mm-hmm. now, uh, even more so in the last month. Um, odd, Yeah, I've noticed odd things coming and going. I've always been used to Twitter being not the most reliable site, um, but it's certainly taken a step in the wrong direction. As you say, I mean, we've covered stories on the show about how um, Twitter in India has tried to stand up to the Indian government, for example, and the release of an Indian native alternative coup um, mm. to, to Twitter. Um, so, yeah, clearly slashing the workforce by, by two-thirds in that country is only going to weaken Twitter's position vis-a-vis the government there. Of course, that's being replicated around the world. I've heard that Brazil has been very affected as well. Yep. And we know what happens already when social media companies step back or never even step into mm-hmm. particular regions and, and don't pay much attention. We've seen that in Myanmar with, with Facebook, Sri Lanka and elsewhere. So mm-hmm. these are really live and life-and-death um, issues. But I think the, what, what this whole thing really reveals is that the bargain that we've struck with, um, with tech companies as civil society has rested on pretty shaky foundations all along. You know, we, we, we strike deals implicitly to allow these sites to occupy quasi-infrastructural uh, places, roles in our society. And that, that, that bargain can either be shaken by governments, as we've seen across the world with India, certainly Trump and many other examples mm-hmm. of that, and or it can be undermined by the platforms themselves if, as in this case, they're taken over or they change their own structure or just change how they do business. And I think we're seeing here that the it turns out, yeah, the, the world's richest, richest man, or he was the world's mm-hmm. richest man, can just buy a platform on a whim, even a really important platform like this, and, and turn it upside down. And, and that should cause us all to ask serious questions about with moderation and ownership when it comes to social media. So I guess the big question is maybe where do we go from here yeah. with Twitter? There are two we's in this. There's obviously the we of us as in Twitter users. Where do we go? Literally, where do we yeah. go? Um, I think we might have different answers to that, which is interesting. And the second question is um, where does Twitter go from here? Where mm. is the platform itself going? Where does Elon Musk go? Um, you know, is this all going to settle at some point? How long do we see Elon Musk as being the CEO of Twitter? We can't answer all of these questions, but what do you think, Josh, with the first on where do users go? Yeah, let's check out that first one first. I think <laughs> I I think I know how we're going to disagree. Um, yeah. Let's see. Mm-hmm. I'm already on Mastodon. I don't think you are. I'm not on Mastodon yet. I know. And purely that is laziness on my point. But I do have arguments as to why I'm not actually. But you can you go first. I'll state the case first. Yeah. So I think uh, in some ways it rese- it's, it's the uh, the service that most resembles Twitter in form and function. In crucial ways it doesn't, which we can come on to. Um, but if you just want a, a kind of a what seems like a like-for-like Twitter replacement, this is pretty close to, to that, at least in terms of character-limited posts, the ability to kind of amplify or retweet and favorite tweets, reply and, and so on, share links and so on. And in some ways, it's actually ahead of Twitter in, in, mm. in key ways, like things like spoiler alerts and, and things like that. So in terms of the sort of day after, you know, where the morning after the Twitter collapses, where do you go? I would certainly mm. say Mastodon. Where I, th- I can imagine you might um, have some issues is, uh, and where other people have had some challenges in, in, uh, in figuring it out, is this question of defederation and, and servers and how those are run. But t- yeah, what, what's your, what are your mm. sticking points at the moment with Mastodon? So I think my initial feeling was a little bit of tech weariness when there, there was this Mastodon suggestion. Um, I think, you know, it's not clear to me that everyone is making the move to Mastodon. I think we talk about the, when Twitter ends. I mean, that seems to be a kind of Twitter is in decline, but perhaps there'll never be an end point. Um, you know, we might be on it for a very long time. And a lot of the people who 
uh, our jumping ship to Mastodon are also still staying and posting the same content on Twitter. So I'm happy to kind of cling on until I eventually get tossed out or, you know, I toss myself out. I think that a lot of the misunderstanding perhaps about why people like Twitter is not that people like a, a polished kind of stream of perfect posts about academia and about the articles people are writing, although that stuff has been very useful for me. There's also humor, right? There's also mm -hmm. like see meeting or like seeing people from different aspects of life post on the same platform. Um, I don't just want to go to a platform that's all academics or all journalists. Um, I like the fact that Twitter, even though it is still very much used by elites, is something that ordinary people use as well and make funny posts. And I think there is a Twitter community um, that is already kind of splintering. I've heard people talk about Hive, mm -hmm. which is a new alternative. And I think the lack of an easily read, like what seems to us like a not very easily ready alternative might mean that, you know, these communities, like the Mastodon community is smaller. Um, the, the Hive community is smaller. Some people are just like, well, I'm done with, with this form of social media altogether. I don't know how practical that is. Um, so I think I'm relatively happy to see where Twitter ends up, though that's not a reason to not get a Mastodon account. It's just, I think what you, you know, what this whole thing has suggested to us is it's best not to put your eggs in one basket. Yeah, I, I think that's a key thing. I will say, I think I, I agree with you, Mastodon, at least my Mastodon now is, is quite earnest. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but I think that is that is kind of the vibe I get. And maybe I'm more earnest on Mastodon, I, I don't know. Mm. Um but it's also easier to, to kind of picture your audience, which I think is quite mm. interesting, particularly when these networks are quite small. Um, you can imagine 500 people even more than you can imagine 5,000, for example, when yeah. you followed them recently and they followed you. But I, I, yeah, certainly I think this is a wake-up call. If we accept the proposition that we shouldn't be trusting any single platform with mm. all our, uh, either all our data, all our social connections and so on, then maybe this is a good wake-up call, albeit a, a painful one for many people. Um, to make us realize that like, we do need a bit of a fail-safe here. We need some redundancy in social media, and we really need interoperability. Yeah. And I think an idea, a concept like Mastodon, even, even if it's not Mastodon, that gets people thinking about the ability to move between networks and, mm. and change who's, you know, who, get to be able to decide who makes the rules for you is really refreshing, even if that, that doesn't actually go near it in practice. It's been a really interesting period. On Friday, there was this day where it seemed like everyone woke up and decided Twitter was going to end that day and wouldn't mm. be around the next day. Um, and there was very much a goodbye. And it's really funny because most people's posts on Twitter most of the time are things like, God, I hate this hell site. Yeah. And then on one day, that one day, it was like, thank you for the friendships and the networks I've made. Yeah, exactly. So there's nothing like the potential death of a platform to make you think about what you liked about that platform. Maybe yeah. the one thing we can take away from this is to think about the things we, we like about Twitter or the things that we liked past tense about Twitter um, and think, okay, what's important for me in a platform going forward? Yeah, I think one, one example of that, which is um, just a really interesting one um, in terms of the marriage of kind of form and function with culture is is kind of call out culture mm. um, which I think is currently one can do on Twitter with the quote tweet function is typically the way to sort of dunk on someone um, or to raise uh, issues with them uh, with something that they said that feature that function doesn't exist on, on Mastodon right now so that is a loss now some would say depending on I think on your perspective some would say that that's a good thing or a bad thing I think different communities use that in different ways um, but I do think you know, one of the things that I liked slash liked about Twitter is the proximity to power yes. that many people can get. And there was a, a, a democratic element to it whereby if, you know, we all know the ratio, things like that, there were metrics to 
show one's displeasure, whether it's with a, uh, a, a customer service which you're not pleased with or with something, some outrage um, that's gone on online. Of course, add all that together, and I think Twitter d- could easily become quite overwhelming in terms of the, the level of, if not toxicity, negativity on the site, as, as you said, the, the hell site type view. So there's probably a middle ground to be struck. I certainly don't think Musk is the person to find that middle ground. Well, on that note, then maybe we should ask, where does Musk go from here? Where does Twitter go from here? What do you think is realistically going to happen? Yeah, I think it's in Musk's interest to steady the ship. I don't really buy the theory that he did it. He bought it to destroy it. Even for him, no, and that's not... Because that's it's not also really. affecting his stocks and Tesla. Like, exactly. you know, his, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's not beneficial to a business owner to do this for any no. of his businesses. I do think he, he bought it uh, on as a, a joke. Yeah, as a joke that kind of got out of hand. I think that probably is more likely than not. But it's, now that he, he has this uh, investment, it's, he, it behooves him to, um, to do something with it. There's what I think he should do and what I think he will do. <laughs> what I think he will do is prioritize his narrow version of engineering. And, you know, we've already seen had lots of people on the ethics and, and yeah. uh, sort of social side of Twitter who've already been sadly um, sacked. Um, sadly, I think based on that kind of hardcore email, etc., Musk is going to double down on things like reliability in, in very narrow sense without really paying much attention to the the kind of uh, social infrastructure of, of Twitter. So that's what I would worry about. What, what do you think he should do there? Oh, God, that is a way harder question. Yeah. Um, you know, can we rewind like several weeks, several months? I guess yeah. not. Um, I think maybe the interesting thing now is Musk finally seeing that actually running this platform is way harder than he ever thought because he was always one to kind of make points about what Twitter should be doing. The fact that that can't happen or that hasn't happened the way he expected is maybe making him realize that things like verification are actually very difficult. Um, You know, this idea of free speech, what does that actually mean? How do you define it? Probably the first thing he's going to have to do is hire Back, hire back slash hire a lot of people, um, including content moderators. Um, I don't know if this is a, like, these are all questions about what should Musk do. I think the main question I have is what is he trying to make Twitter more like? What's his, Mm. what's the goal? What's the end point? I don't really see the end point here. No, I, no, I can't see the vision for it. Really, I can see a lot of what he's supposedly against. Yes. um, But being pro free speech doesn't mean very much unless you enunciate what that is and certainly doing a a poll of uh, of users to decide whether a former president gets back on Twitter, but then deciding on a whim that other conspiracy theorists shouldn't be on Twitter seems pretty capricious. So, and that former president then rejecting Twitter altogether. Yeah, seemingly. seemingly. A, twist in the, a twist in the tale. Yeah. Well, there's probably a lot more to come, I think, on the Twitter front. Um, as I said before, we're kind of experiencing news stories almost live at this rate. Yeah. Um, it's very possible that Josh and I will record this and by the time the episode comes out, there'll be something new on Twitter that we haven't talked about. But if you're listening to this, then you know why that is. Um, moving to a slightly different story, but one that I feel very personally invested in. Um, Josh, maybe I'm interested to hear your take on this as someone who maybe has less of a personal stake here. Um, so this is about the Ticketmaster monopoly and the Taylor Swift fans trying to buy t- trying to buy tickets to her show, the debacle that erupted kind of over the last week. Um, so Taylor Swift fans will be preparing for her tour next year. Um, she has only announced tickets for her US wing of the tour, so 52 stadium shows. Um, and Ticketmaster, which has a monopoly on ticket sales in the US, um, had a pre-sale push last week, and there are approximately 14 million users on the site at once. Huge problems as they sold 2.4 million pre-sale tickets. 
There were major malfunctions. People were waiting hours. Some people sold. Um, some people bought tickets for sort of hundreds and hundreds more than they expected. Mm. Tickets changed price as they were buying them. Um, and then eventually what happened is that this was the pre-sale. And on November 17th, Ticketmaster said it wouldn't even be selling tickets to the general public. So that's kind of the end of that wing of the tour. And it's been a, it's been a disaster. It's been something that Taylor Swift has spoken about. Um, and the Department of Justice is reportedly going to open a antitrust investigation mm. into Ticketmaster, which is, I think, where our angle on it on the show comes in. Yeah. Josh, I don't know if you followed the story at all. Um, I don't know if you have any views on Ticketmaster and the sort of ticket monopoly in the US. Yeah, well, having um, tried and failed to get Glastonbury tickets, in part because Taylor Swift might be playing, not not the main reason. Actually, I will say I don't think she is. Really? Um, I've looked at the tour dates very closely. Okay. And I don't think she'll be able to be in the UK for those dates. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, my favourite band is in the UK at the time, so we'll see. But, but either way... Um, Yes, clearly, you know, this is an, uh, this is one of those stories where I think a sufficient uh, threshold of ordinary people have been affected by it, that it has filtered its way into into the political class and, and mm. into the, the halls of power in, in Washington. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is that Ticketmaster has a monopoly over over ticket sales. I guess I'd say that kind of monopoly is a somewhat novel phenomenon mm. uh, in the internet era. Clearly, the ability for a single company to kind of, I think, not only do they control ticket selling, but they have control of the whole ticket process right as well so yeah and um you know a lot of people exclusively can only buy tickets to Ticketmasters. a lot of artists can only work with Ticketmaster if they want to fill stadiums yeah um aoc tweeted uh after the Ticketmaster kind of debacle she said uh she she said daily reminder that Ticketmaster is a monopoly it's merger with live nation should never have been approved and they need to be reined in break them up um, and I think it's one of those examples of how things like monopolies or you know the massive hold that some companies have on us kind of only comes to light after it's failed. Um, yeah. In in sometimes in the way that like democracies work, right? Like you only think of these issues. I mean, obviously in hindsight, it's it's really important. It, I mean, a lot of fans, and that's kind of what's been the issue driving this. Is a lot of Taylor Swift fans saying this is absurd, this is ridiculous. I'm heartbroken about this. I suppose also because a lot of her fans tend to be quite young. Um, it's the idea that like maybe a lot of teenagers were on this website paying hundreds of dollars mm. for something that just you know hasn't hasn't worked out, um, and I think that we only kind of realise these issues after the fact. Uh, and well, I'm obviously very hopeful because that was just the US wings. So hopefully they fix this for the <laughs> upcoming Europe tour. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of interesting that this issue has gone all the way to like to Congress Um, and you know this has been the evidence they can cite for why monopoly why this monopoly doesn't work yeah exactly I think you're right the cracks only become clear when when it doesn't work and that's when when scrutiny of these kinds of problems start Um, but yeah it's a very particular kind of monopoly isn't it Mm. because it's it's got this kind of end-to-end control over the entire ticket kind of selling process unlike just being a website which then has a independent relationship to say stadiums and artists and, and so on yeah so, which is why I say that, it, yeah, it's quite a, a, a novel um, configuration, I think, in, in the internet era, but one that we clearly, people like AOC and others, realise that we need to take more seriously. Yeah, and there's just no incentive for these kind of monopolies to... And, like, I think we've all gotten used to the rising cost of 
watching live music basically mm. over the last you know 10 20 years yeah um even things like i guess glastonbury becoming more expensive although arguably it's still much better value for money than quite a lot of these solo tours mm-hmm. um you know there are people who spent like a thousand dollars for an average ticket mm. in mm. a taylor swift tour in like phoenix arizona i mean these aren't places like these tours and these kind of ticketing prices monopolies don't take into account the fact that people maybe shouldn't be paying that much money in their hometown to see an artist in like a town or a state where the average wages and average salary does not equal anything near this. Yeah. You know, it's not just kind of coastal elites coming to watch. Obviously Taylor Swift isn't a good example of this because she's a very, very big artist, but people enjoy music even if they can't afford massive tickets as well. Yeah. Um, And it's quite interesting because we've kind of got this two level thing of Spotify, maybe uh, like, you know, an era of like, free music in this sense or cheap music but also much much more difficult to see music live yeah um but i thought it was an interesting example of yeah the the failings of platforms or websites uh and monopolies um but also something that i think it's really interesting to see the way that's that translated on on my feed from like a taylor swift fan story to a much bigger story about (laughs) about monopolies yeah it's it's fascinating i think the yeah the interconnectedness of of these things now and the fact that so much of this stuff does run through the internet means that actually the internet offers a a potential point of intervention to to deal with those very offline issues that you that you're talking about but so those are the two stories that we wanted to cover this week in particular um but as we said at the top it is the three-year anniversary of of the podcast in, in some form so we thought we'd take a little bit of time before we finish up um, to just talk through some of the trends. And I think in some ways what we've spoken about today is is in some ways representative of, of a lot of what we've been talking about the whole time, certainly in relation to power and culture and mm. many other things. But yeah, three years in, it's hard to journey back to that time just before the pandemic as well as everything else. But uh, yeah. what, what's changed and what's stayed the same in that time? Well, let's start with the show itself. It uh, initially began as a radio show. Yep. Um, the very first episode, let's say, was around three years today. And you started it, not me. Yep, it's true. And it was called Algorithms, Yep, which was a great title. <laughs> and I still miss that. And I miss the rhythms as well. Yeah. Um, and then... Halfway through, <laughs> when I was your first guest, you asked me to st- if I want to co-host with yeah. you, which was amazing. Yeah. And somehow that worked out really well. It worked out great. It's safe to say it wouldn't be going on now without you. So Oh, that's that's so nice. Well, I'm so glad you asked me to do that because it's been a really... I'm just really glad we kept it going during yeah. the pandemic as yeah. well. Um, I think the big shift for us that happened then is we, because we weren't recording in person anymore, um, our takes have become a little bit... I guess we... we because we, we're not doing a live music show anymore, we're not doing a music show anymore, we don't have the access to play music, um, we started maybe picking up one or two stories that really interested us that we could yeah. talk and make connections with. And I like that we did that because I think sometimes we look at, the, at an episode and we think, oh, there's actually more connections there than we realize between Definitely. these stories. And Definitely. I think you're right about this idea of power and who holds power. Um, a big thing on the show has always been the global focus. Yeah. Um, the difference between people making these decisions in like Silicon Valley, people like Elon Musk and the impact of those decisions um, in places in the global south. We often focus on India yep. um, for personal and professional reasons, <laughs> I think. Um, and I also think that, you know, in the last year, we've talked about it a lot, but we've we've talked more about this idea of power being maybe recentered a little bit through unions. That's yep. been a big theme that's come out in the last year. We've had a lot of episodes on that. Yeah, no, those are definitely some of the some of the big ones, some of the ones I would have highlighted. <laughs> the one that um, 
we've spoken a bit about today as well is this um, idea of tech as infrastructure and not just as kind of in, uh, invisible um, mediation. And I think that really comes across in things like Twitter's verification um, system, things that sit in this kind of liminal space between legal and legitimate and sort of tacitly accepted. And as we said, with respect to things like Ticketmaster, those those uh, those um, things only become visible when often when things go wrong. But certainly, and, and certainly the case of Twitter as well, um, when things get taken over, uh, I think that can become much more prevalent. The other thing, of course, is, is how um, technology has uh, interacted with the many, many other news stories that have occurred mm-hmm. in the three years we've been on. We mentioned the, the pandemic, clearly. Yep. Things like disinformation uh, is really prevalent there, but also with respect to war. Mm-hmm. Populism has, has come and sadly not really gone uh, in that time as well, although we have seen a new president. We even did a... A live episode. <laughs> yeah, we've had that. some interesting changes in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. In Brazil, for example, yeah. um, you know, some some of that has changed. We've had, yeah. I was going to ask you about your maybe your some of your highlights, and I think for both of us, the live election episode we did, yeah, episodes, the kind of nonstop full nighter that we pulled. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a bit surreal. Yeah, but great. I cannot. I yeah, it was such a weird time. I think especially because we were still in the pandemic during this period. Um, We were still facing restrictions in the UK and in many other parts of the world too. Um, I think maybe thinking about what's going to, yeah, what something that I've really enjoyed more recently is the re is bringing guests back on. Yeah. Um, That was something that actually the show began with. And then due to not being able to record in person for quite a long time, it sort of went away and we've brought it back. And I I really like that. I hope listeners like that too. Yeah. Um, So the research element of our show has almost been repositioned a little bit more recently. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think we've... um We've kind of yeah brought in more more voices, which has been great. We're also mm-hmm. recording in person again, which is which is really nice, really fun as well. Um, but I think those are things that kind of stick out as as well as the sort of um, general greater scepticism, which works well with our title towards tech companies, just just in general, you know, even before Musk, etc. There's much more awareness, I think, certainly in the kind of informed um, audiences that, that I think hope we speak to through the show that people are much more aware of who really calls the shots in the world of tech and that it's not just a, a couple of um, beardy guys in Silicon hmm. Valley running the whole thing. It's actually a, a multinational and multi-sectoral kind of phenomenon, epiphenomenon, I suppose. Um, and I'm glad that we've been able to kind of shine a light on different aspects of that through the course of the show. So, uh, yeah, that's where we that's where we um, we might finish up today. But this is not the end of the show. This isn't a retrospective <laughs> on the show itself. Yeah, absolutely. We... we just wanted to think about, I mean, I don't know. It's just nice to mark the occasion. It's a good time of year as well to, to do that. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had any thoughts on the, the next year of the show. Of the show or of the of what the, we talk about? Of the tech landscape and thus the show, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of the tech landscape, I mean... Yeah, the, the sorts of things we talked about today, greater political oversight potentially on, on tech, the fragmentation not just um, amongst sort of different groups of people, but amongst nations of different platforms is going to be really important. Mm. And every year serves up new elections and new, um, obviously, new stories as well. So I suppose there's a lot of stuff that we, we, we can't necessarily foresee, but we are going to be talking about in in the years, well, in the months to come. Um, in terms of the show itself, yeah, I think we'll <laughs> continue to uh bring on new voices we've yep. got you know non-oi people starting to come on the show which is really exciting as well um and yeah i mean we i think we plan to to keep it going really yeah we, both we definitely look- have talked about a few new ideas that we might try out yeah. um maybe watch the space 
in terms of my predictions for the next year, I guess one thing I was thinking about while you were speaking was this idea of thinking about alternatives. Um, Mm -hmm. So something that maybe the Twitter, I mean, I don't know if these alternatives will, will work, but I think something that the Twitter changes have maybe sparked in people is this desire to find platforms that do it better or do it differently or just do it new um so i think there'll be a lot of not just for twitter but for a lot of different things whether it's Ticketmaster, whether it's twitter Mm -hmm. whether it's even meta um i think we're going to see a lot of changes in that um in that field i still think unions um and the push towards labor organizing is going to be a huge huge trend in the Mm -hmm. next year and hopefully for the foreseeable future um, and otherwise, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be here. We're going to yeah. be we're going to be talking about it. Um, and it is great to still be here with you, yep. Josh. <laughs> I can, couldn't agree more. But we will until next time. Until next time, and Stay thanks well for everyone. listening. Yep. And message us with any questions on any on any platform. You like. On any platform. Bye. Bye.